When the going gets tough, the tough gets going. Or is it really toughness? I'm chatting to my dear friend Karen, who also grew up in Toti in the late 70s and who now lives in the UK. With her is her son Zander, and if you wonder how to overcome tough going, stay close. Hi to both of you. Hi, Persia, and thanks to Chat Sapphire for having us all the way from the UK. Yes, I want to say thank you as well. Karen, let's start with you. Perhaps tell the listeners how you link to this region and maybe a bit about your mum, as some listeners might remember her. Golly, this takes me back years and years ago. Um, we moved to Manzantoti in, you were right, the late 70s. And um, I went to Kiswach last school, which was then, I think I was in Standard 5, and it was the first or the second year that the Standard 5s were incorporated into the new building. And, um, yeah, do you remember that, Sergio? Fondly. My fondest memories was, in actual fact, your mom, who was our English teacher. And um, I was this, like, really frightened girl that moved all the way from Johannesburg. And um, she just made my first year at school and my first year in the Manson Toti such a pleasure. And, of course, the two of us became very good friends. Indeed. Oh, thanks for remembering my mum, but tell us a bit about your mum, as some of the listeners really might remember her. Yes, my mum worked at um, Aquarius Pharmacy in Sunlum Centre for, oh, must be close on to 30 years. Um, and in actual fact, my parents stayed in Amanzum Toti until my dad passed away, and I think that was in, two, I'm trying to remember, I think that was in 2011. So I still went back to Amazon Toji quite regularly and um, and picked up. But of course, Toja, you'll know that we didn't have the luxury of social media. So we only really in the very last recent years were able to um, all reconnect. But um, yeah, apart from that, I did go to Amazon Toji to, to visit them often. And a lot of people will remember Sunny Gersey in the in the um, in the pharmacy as. Um, as she worked alongside Mr. Berger for, for many, many, many years, looking after many, many people in Amantum Poti. Now, you moved to the UK almost 20 years ago. Just give us a quick idea of whereabouts you've settled. We, um, yeah, we always have a good giggle about this because when in a, whenever anybody says you've moved to the UK, they always assume it's London. But we actually settled in the West Midlands, which is about two hours north of London. So we're rather fortunate to have a little bit of the English countryside around us. Um, it's actually a fair bit closer to the city of Birmingham. Oh. Yeah, that's, that's where we are. Now, Zander, we met each other early last year when you were actually in South Africa. So at least we're not strangers to each other now. Um, two years ago, you were a young man fresh out of school, admitted to university in Bristol at the medical school, and a club rugby player at your local club. Give us a quick background, first of all, what it's like to grow up in the UK, but with two very Afrikaans parents who had only their own reference to introduce to your upbringing in an English-speaking country. Well, Persia, I moved here when I was two years old. Um... And I've always like felt a little bit out of place, um, a little bit different to my friends. Uh, they've always, I've always been loud and inappropriate. 
and actually I got into a few fights in primary school because of my uh, my support of the Springboks. Um, <laughs> but uh, ultimately, it actually led to me being the person that I am today, and actually, wouldn't, I wouldn't change it for the world. Like I, I embrace the difference and I embrace what makes me unique um, here as an African citizen living in the UK. And at that time, what were your sporting achievements or ambitions? Well, like I said, I've, I've, I love the Springboks and I've, I've always loved rugby. And I've played it right from the start of high school through to university. Um, but I never had any ambition or any real achievements in it. I just It's just something that I love to do. But I, I did play for the first 15 for both my school and my university, like for the medical school of my university. Zander, and then things changed. Can you tell our listeners about this? Sure. So in 2018, I was in my first year of medical school, and I came back home because it was it was at the end of the year, and we were we were about to write our final final exams for that year. Um, and I came back home to just get get away from university and study a bit. And one day I went to go walk the dog. And like I said, I've always been a little bit different. And the English people here don't really climb trees as much. At 19 years old, I thought it'd be a good idea to climb a tree. And I got up, I got up the tree, and on my way back down, uh, I fell out, and I fell about three meters on straight onto my back onto the roof, and I broke my back. And I, uh, yeah, I just so straight away when I hit the floor, I just realized that I couldn't feel or move my leg. I then I was then rushed to hospital in an ambulance. Um, and they did tests there, and I was passing in and out of just understanding what was going on. But what happened was, after a while, they diagnosed me. They said I had, I had a, a T12 burst fracture, which is where my where, where, where one of my one of the bones in my spine had burst, and it had actually caused bruising on my spinal cord, uh, which left me with a spinal injury. I had about six hours of surgery, neurosurgery on my back, where they put two metal rods either side to try and fix my spine and it took all the bony bits out that was also imprinted on my spine. So I woke up the next morning and they just told me that I was paralyzed from the waist down and would never be able to walk again. Sure. Karen, I can imagine as a mom at this point, life feels like a trap door had opened under your feet. I think it's a rather surreal experience. Persia, I um, I remember a friend walked with Zander and she called me and said that Zander had fallen and I could hear in her voice that she was rather hysterical. And I went out, I think it's amazing how some events in your life can really go into slow motion. I remember distinctly what I made them for lunch. I made, we had ordered um, jaffel pans from South Africa and they had arrived and I'd made them jaffels with babuti on the inside. And um, I was busy cleaning up when I got this phone call and it, they were in the park and it was about, oh, I think, two, three minutes away from us. And I just absolutely left everything and I got there and... Um, I saw Zander lying there and he was in excruciating pain and the tears were just rolling down his face and he just, he said, you know, the things that he said to me at that moment, I think even as a first year medical student, he knew how bad this was and he just saw his life flash away in front of him and he said to me, I'll never be able to walk, I'm not going to be able to practice medicine, my life as I know it is over and 
it's the worst one you know when you want to protect your children with everything that you've gotten you but mm. but you just at that moment no you can't and I just lay beside him and being a person of faith the only thing that I knew was to pray and I didn't even have the words my prayers just basically sounded like help all the time repeatedly over and over again and a strange thing happened at that moment. I There's a scripture in the Bible that says that um, a peace that surpasses all understanding. And I literally felt a peace enter into my life that surpasses all understanding. Now, don't get me wrong. This peace has got absolutely nothing to do with emotion. It is a surety of knowing that we are not alone. And that everything will be okay. But managing your emotions literally looked like those first few weeks in hospital where I had to remind myself to breathe at times. Where there's such moments of such heartache, of such fear, of such anxiety, of not understanding. But always, always grounded in a peace that we are not alone in this and it is going to be okay. And... Yeah, I think that's all I can, you know, as, as we started puzzling the pieces together over the, the days and weeks and months, um, things, the puzzle became, the picture became clearer to us. But for that moment, yeah, it's a very indescribable, a very indescribable thing to go, to take it all back and go, this is what it was. Um, but yeah, it, it is, it is literally remind yourself to breathe at certain times. I think for someone who has not gone through that kind of experience, nobody can say, I can imagine how you feel. So I certainly can't. Zander, um, you reached a low point where you were faced with reality. What happened then? Well, Tasha, actually at the start, I completely lost sight of reality. I was told on the first, well, as soon as I came, as soon as I came to consciousness after my surgery I was told that I'd have to lie flat on my back or in that hospital bed for six weeks without being able to go outside or without being able to leave the bed itself whilst they whilst my spine whilst my spine stabilized and uh it was it was tough going I must say this this lockdown that we're in right now it's for me this this is a bit of a breeze I've, this is a, it feels like the second time that I've done this but it was a lot more freedom this time around but yeah, so I had so those first six weeks was were tough. But one thing that I that one thing that I did that I did decide to do because I was on a lot of I was on a lot of drugs at that time with morphine, paracetamol every four hours, and like I was very like I was very in and out of consciousness. But one thing I decided what one thing I decided to do was I wanted to still write my first year exams because obviously I missed those being um, yeah after after my accident. But I. Right. So at the end of the six weeks, on the last day of that six week bed rest, I actually wrote my wrote my first year exams, and I passed those, um, which I was which I was quite surprised about because half of the time I was either sick or I was sleeping off the uh, off the effect of the painkillers. But yeah, in total, I was in hospital for about a hundred days, which seemed like a lifetime, and I couldn't leave the house leave that hospital. When I after, after on, on that hundredth day, when we'd made the changes at home, that actually meant that I could come home. I, I still, like, I still felt like I was trapped, and I was still felt like I was locked, locked in. Um, I didn't have any, I didn't have any 
plans for the future. I passed my I passed my like my my first year degree, but I still had to stay at home for a year, and I didn't have any clue about what I what it is that I wanted to do. But then I remember that I had a friend who was actually the world record holder for the hundred meters in in wheelchair racing, and she so I sent her a message, and I asked her. I said to her, I, I want to do what you do. And later in that week, in the first week out of hospital, I was on the athletics track. I just felt like a weight lifted off my shoulders. I was going so I was going like well, I was going what I thought was fast anyway. But uh, people were going past me, going through a collapse. People were going past me quick, quick. But uh, I was just um, <laughs> I was just happy to be up and out and doing something actually that it, that was different to life. So. Yeah, so, this, so that first few months, it was just a lot of me training. Um, I trained three times a week at the, at the athletic track. And um, and yeah, so after that, um, we we were going to come to South Africa anyway in December for my cousin's wedding. And but then me but then me, me and my mum decided to extend that when we heard of a rehab clinic in Cape Town called Walking with Brandon that was established by. A good, a good friend of mine now, his name is Brandon, who broke his neck in a gymnastics accident. But it's a very good uh, rehab clinic that offers rehabilitation to people with disabilities in South Africa um, at, a, at, an avo- at, a, at an affordable rate. And it's top quality, world, world-renowned. But yeah, so my trip, my trip to South Africa was extended to four months. Um, and it's, it's the longest time that I've been in South Africa since I was born. And for the first time, like it just felt like I was home. So, yeah. So those first four those first four months in South Africa were mainly spent doing rehab and training. But compared to how I was in the hospital, hospital when I completely lost sight of reality, actually, like those those first six months out of hospital, really, like it was just a complete difference in who I was as a person. Sure. Now, when we met, it was of course a fabulous combination of events. I'd known you were both in SA at the time, but logistics meant even if she tried, it wasn't possible for mom to fly to Durban for a visit. And then as it turned out, I had to go to Cape Town. But we knew still our schedules didn't allow a meeting. And I was at the airport and our flight was delayed, so I took a walk and I bumped into your mom. Do you remember that moment, Karen? Oh, Sergio, I couldn't believe it. It's like just one of those absolute glorious moments. Yeah. The amount of luggage we had with us, we had to get, it was a morning flight. The amount of luggage we have, the amount of arrangements we that goes into trying to take a flight, um, which we're now very good with, but at that point in time, it was one of our, I think our second flight we took. We had to get up like five o'clock that morning. So, yes, I ran into you without any makeup and a little bit like lockdown hair. I don't think I've washed the grey out of my hair for for months at that point. (laughs) So, but what what an absolute glorious moment to run into you at the airport. It was brilliant. And as it turned out, I could finally meet the young man whose journey hundreds, if not thousands of people, had started to follow thanks to social media. And then the opportunity came for us to go back to Cape Town on the very same weekend that you did something incredible, Zander. Tell us about that. Well, if it is what, what I think you're referencing, I, I had my first athletics competition. And I, this is, at this point, I've been training in wheelchair racing for about six months. And this was the um, the South African this was the South African national competitions, but it had had athletes from all over Africa. There was a Kenyan athlete, 
and uh, and yeah, so it, it went quite well actually. Um, I had four races and I medaled in all of them. Um, I got a gold in the, um, and then I also got two silvers and a bronze. But it was very cool. Um, and actually, for the, for the first time in my life, it gave me a taste of what the life is of a professional athlete. That sort of pressure that you have, but also the like the, the feeling at the end when the race is done and you look back and you see how you've done it. Just it's something that I, I can't describe. I actually can't remember any any of my races from that. Um, I, I finished the race and because I had so much adrenaline, by the time it was done, I just completely forgot anything that, anything that had happened in the race. And some of those races were about three four minutes long. So, yeah, it was, it, was, it was crazy. An amazing moment. Of course, you make it sound easy, as if it all just fell into place. But is it a once-off decision to be positive, or is there more to it? After, after my accident, I spent a lot of time. Half the time I was either asleep, or the rest of the time I was crying. <laughs> it, was, it was a hard time, uh, and for everyone in my family, and... As much as I'm a positive person by nature, it was it was incredibly tough. I can't say that I can't say that there's any way of getting through it for anyone uh, without actually having having to experience those emotions. But then once I'd actually gone through all the necessary emotions that I felt like I needed to, I realised that I was actually spiralling and I was going I was going through the emotion, dealing with it, and then going back to the start. And I decided. I decided at one point that it's actually like if you've gone through everything that you need to and you go back to the start, then you're just you're just circling and you're not actually getting anywhere. So that was about four months in that I felt like I felt like I dealt with everything. And, I, and then I made a decision one day to my mum. We both had a decision that, that I was going to live a good life and that each day would be a good one. So I don't know, I can't, I can't remember exactly how it happened, but... One day I just made a switch and I said that actually this would be a good life. So each day I've made I've made that decision. I wake up in the morning and it's not the same as everyone as everyone else where they, you just swing your legs out and you get up and you do your day. For me, I need to swing my legs out. I need to get on, get into my wheelchair. I need to do all the thing extra things that people that people need to do that people don't actually see. But it's um. So that's a decision that I need to make every single day, but it's a decision that I never regret making because it is it is actually giving me a new lease on life. And there there are some days where it's more difficult than others, yeah. But overall, my life is so much better now, um, and it allowed me to work towards something new in this life. And how independent are you now? Um, so. In the, so, yeah, so obviously before my accident, I was completely independent. I was a varsity, just living my life. And then I remember the, the hardest part actually was after my accident, going from that, going from a complete independence that you feel for the first time, and then just going completely reliant, being completely reliant on people to actually get through the days, whether that's nurses or after hospital, that was my parents to drive me around, and it was it was tough and. One thing actually that I've learned from that is something that I've not, something that I didn't have before was like I've learned when 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 I need to ask for help. So then when time went on and I learned how to drive again and and all these things, my independence increased. But that lesson that I learned of actually it's okay to ask for help uh, if you need it. That's something which stuck with me. So right now I'm living, I'm at Boston again. I'm in my second, I mean actually I'm in my third year of medical school. I'm living by myself and 
but I, but I have that skill now where I can where I can also help if it's if it's needed. So yeah, I'm I'm completely I'm completely independent now. Your mom, of course, regularly updates us on your antics. You are an extrovert by nature, and I'm sure our listeners can hear that nothing's changed. Tell us about your current position in terms of athletics. So when I came back from South Africa, I told my coach about how my how my events had gone at the nationals, and um, yeah, within within a month of coming back from South Africa, I was in America <laughs> training with at the international like the, the internationally renowned wheelchair racing institute at the University of Illinois, where the where the uh, American Paralympic team trains. And uh, so it was. It was like it was pretty cool uh, being able to travel the world and do that. But I, um, when I was done, I then came back and I did a few races in England. And by the end of the uh, by the end of my first season, I'd been I was ranked ninth in the UK for the 200 meters. This was the best ranking that I've had so far. And the Run for Heroes challenge. So with a lockdown going down. With the lockdown currently, we there's been a lot of challenges going around. You've got the shirt challenge, you've got the, you've got the one where you have to eat the egg and uh, have the sugar and drink the whiskey and like all those things. But um, and here in the UK, we have there's a charity that was set up called Run for Heroes, and what it does is it, it supports the it supports the NHS that we have here, so the um, healthcare system that we have here. Because they're in a lot of stress right now. There's a lot of volunteers, and then yeah, there's a lot of volunteers that are helping out, um, but that aren't getting paid. So what the what the charity does is just help raise money for those so that they can get food or they can get accommodation or they don't have to pay for parking, all these things. But what it is is it's, uh, what, uh, it's a 5k run, um, and then you donate five pounds to the charity, and then you nominate five other people to do it. So if you if it works if it if it works out well, each person that does it actually raises thirty pounds for the charity because of the nominations that they are uh, that they that they caught. So I challenged my my racing group. Uh, we did a we did a Zoom call, and we all yeah we all video chatted, and we did ten k. Uh, so we did two sets of five k on uh, on Zoom on the indoor rollers, and I reckon we raised around a hundred pounds just just in that time alone. Um, but obviously, obviously, with the nomination, with nominations, it would, it would, it would be a lot more than that. Mm-hmm. So it's amazing, actually, how during this time, the, the whole world is coming together and being just being united as one. I just think that's something I found amazing. Are you looking into other sports as well, or are you focusing on academics now? So right now, with with the lockdown that's going on, yeah, I've just been trying to work a bit on my work a bit on my academics, but I've also been training quite a bit. Um, with the racing, and I've also started a little bit of rowing, just to see how just to see how that is. But uh, I'm just just doing what I can can keep busy um, with with everything, and I'm managing to find that time because I, I genuinely don't know where my days where my days are going at, at this time. Seems like I wake up and then I, and then it's time to get, go to sleep again. <laughs> <laughs> how has your journey changed your perspective on your chosen career? For me, uh, when I before my accident, it was just I was very focused on finishing med school and becoming a doctor and doing and living my life sort of A B C D E. So just sort of going to school, going to university, getting a job, getting a wife and kids, and then getting a house and then growing old and dying. But, but now I've realised that actually there is a chance for me to 
alongside my career in medicine, maybe uh, maybe pursue a career in professional sport as well. So that is also something that I that I wanted to do. But the, because of, since my accident, my life has become a lot more about just experiencing life and just doing all the things that just trying out all the new things in my life that I'm able to do. How do you see yourself, and do you think it affects how others respond to you? Personally, I've not my my view of myself hasn't changed. I'm still the same person, the same person I was before. I'm just as just just as extroverted, just as inappropriate and loud. <laughs> but one thing that I have noticed is because of the social media outlet that I've had and the, the uh, ability that I've had to talk into people's lives. I'm just happy to talk about some more meaningful and serious things. And in, in a way, it's helped other people. A lot, a lot of other people have come, like it's helped other people open up to me. And I've been, I've been able to be uh, sort of just a, an outlet for a lot of people to talk about the things that actually are, are troubling them. And a lot of the time, a lot of the time, it's, not, it's nothing to do with, with what, what happened to me. But it's actually that you and myself that I can I'm, I am something more than just this happy-go-lucky uh, guy. But I actually sometimes I, I, I do say things that people that like that, that people haven't thought of before, and it just and that it that people open up to me. And I think that's, that's an amazing amazing gift that I've been given uh, with this, especially with it being such a visible disability. People often see me and they they try to feel sorry for me, but then after if I, very quickly, I let them. I don't. I, they realize that I'm not going to let them feel sorry for me because this is this is just an, another another additional part of my life. But I don't let anybody. I don't let anyone have the chance to see me for anything other than what I am. I am. I'm done. I'm the same. I'm the same person. And um, I know. I, I just I like to keep that way. Zander, my favorite picture of you is with your girlfriend, where she's wearing a T-shirt saying, "I'm only in it for the parking." So humor is, of course, important in times of crisis, isn't it? Yeah, for me, humor has always been—it's always been, it's always been a, like a, an important aspect. I've, I've, like I said, I'm inappropriate and loud. The inappropriate comes from making jokes at times where sometimes it doesn't seem appropriate, but actually, oh yeah, because a lot of people sometimes think that it's actually a bit too dark. But for me, I think that if if it, if if it's with me, it's never inappropriate. And like a lot of the time, it's just it allows. It's once you get once you get past that first, like a, that first awkward laugh with someone yeah. about something that's actually so serious, it makes just it makes that that connection between you so much easier. And yeah, so we we laughed a lot in that first in that first few in those first few months about about this, and we made all the standard jokes everyone makes, like oh, this must be really really tough or you haven't got a leg to stand on, and obviously all those all those jokes that you that you make, and it's it's a, it's an important it's an important part of actually getting through this. And for some people it works, and for some people, for other people it doesn't work. But to me, I feel like humor is humor is a very important way of getting through it. But yeah, my girlfriend lives in South Africa still, um, and I'm in the UK, so it's, we're doing long distance currently, especially during the lockdown, and uh, it's actually given us a given us a chance to always have a one up because we've had we've had we've been doing it for a year now. Um, so we, this is nothing new to us, but it's it's like I like I said, the humor and making jokes about this situation. That for a lot of people, it, it would suck. It, it, and it does suck. But sometimes it's it's actually it's the only way they can way the way that you can get through this difficult time. 
all of us can suddenly relate to a degree to a sense of paralysis. It's different, and for some it might be temporary. Still, we feel like we fell out of a tree. I spoke to our local rugby club chairperson last week, and we agreed that mental fitness is going to be a key for bounce back in any situation. What can you leave with us as a toolkit? The things that helped you and are still daily helping you to decide to give the next 24 hours a go? My, my advice, um, like I said, this is, this is like it's my second lockdown. So my advice is just to take each day as it comes. You need to do what you want and don't feel bad about it because, because it's, uh, it's for like a lot, of, a lot of time, you can look at what other people are doing, especially with social media. You can see there's so much stuff that other people are doing that you're not doing, but that's because they're doing it because it works for them. Uh, but you don't, you don't necessarily need to learn a new language or learn a new skill. But if that's what you want to do, then do it. But a lot of the time, you can just use this time to actually work on yourself and look look after yourself. And a lot of the people, a lot of people have been so stressed coming up to this time, and it's actually the chance for them to just sit back and take stock of what what's happened recently, or take stock of what's happening in their lives, and actually just use this time as your own to work on yourself and look, look after yourself. And could you say something to us in Afrikaans, please? Yeah, I can't work. I can't work. I can't work. I can't Thanks for being candid about the hard bits, as well as sharing the good bits. We need role models at present, and Zander, you are definitely one for many. Can someone follow you somewhere to see the face behind the story? You can indeed. Um, I have an Instagram page called Six Weeks in Bed with underscores in all, um, between all the words, and it's just a bit of a it's just something to document my journey at the start and how my life is going going now. So that's. That's where you can follow me. And that's about it, as long as Zander can sit still in one place. So we'll let you go. Take care, both of you. Lots of love from the Sapphire Coast to you both. Oh, thank you. And thanks, Sergio, for having us. And um, oh, lots of hugs and kisses to my hometown. Thanks, Sergio. It was lovely talking to you.